what's a little bit strange is I've had five certified uh, near-death experiences. So I'm a slow learner. It's taken a lot of uh, different things, but with every near-death experience, there's a internal transformation or learning that happens. And I think the entire world's had a near-death experience. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor of the Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the motion picture exhibition industry. I am joined today once again by co-host Daniel Loria, Editorial Director of Box Office Pro. And we have a very exciting feature interview for you today with one of the uh, pioneers in the dine-in cinema space, Brian Schultz, CEO of Look Dine-In Cinemas, here to talk about his new venture and his thoughts on the uh, evolution of the dine-in concept. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Speaking of various industry thought leaders and representatives from cinema chains, Daniel, as we record this, we are two weeks out from CinemaCon. I know that uh, we're, we're both very excited to finally see some people in person again. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm excited. I think I'm going to buy my first can of deodorant in maybe a year and a half. I'm hoping to get good use out of it uh, as I'm walking, if not running, the halls of Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas, trying to get from one meeting to another. Uh, Rebecca, I'm really excited to, to head out to, to Vegas for this event. Uh, as we know, CinemaCon 2021 going to be very different from other editions of this event. There's going to be a requirement of vaccination to access the event or a negative uh, COVID-19 test uh, performed 48 hours before the event to access anything in the show. I am fully vaccinated. We'll show up with uh, the masks that we'll be required to be wearing, of course. Uh, I ordered one with the cute little popcorn print on it, so I'm, I'm ready. Oh, nice. You Ooh, have a special uh, CinemaCon 2021 mask. I do. I want to showcase awesome. my allegiance to concessions right, right out the front. No one's going to know that I don't love popcorn. And talking about popcorn, that's a great uh, opportunity to talk about the other sponsor in this week's episode, Oreo Cookies has figured out a way to take a concession stand classic to the next level. That's right, it's Oreo Popcorn, and it's popping up at theaters across the country. This new blockbuster treat is made with real Oreo cookie pieces, drizzles of Oreo-based cake, and drizzles of Oreo cream. What better way to welcome back moviegoers than with an amazing salty and sweet treat 
that combines America's favorite cookie and popcorn to create true movie theater magic. Want to taste a snack that's destined to be a hit for yourself? You can head over to oreopopcornsample.com for a complimentary sample of Oreo popcorn. Again, that's oreopopcornsample.com to get your complimentary Oreo popcorn sample today. And I hope that those three samples are also available at the CinemaCon trade show floor, where I know, Rebecca, we're going to be getting as much free concessions as possible. So yeah, super excited, a little bit nervous. I haven't seen that many people. I think I'm not going to be the only one. I imagine we're all going to be a little bit awkward at uh, actually talking to people face to face. I think there's going to be a little bit of social awkwardness that has to be excused across the board. But we're going to be speaking about CinemaCon a little bit later in the podcast. But before we get to that, let's have a little bit of a a backwards look at what we saw at the box office over this past weekend with the release of The Suicide Squad. The previous film was called Suicide Squad. This one is The Suicide Squad. It's a different one, apparently. Well, I mean, there was certainly a different release strategy with this one uh, because it did go day and day in theaters and on HBO Max. Um, So, Daniel, what did we see in terms of box office for this film? So on the lower end of projections coming into the weekend, the Suicide Squad opening to 26.5 million from around 4,000 theaters. That's an estimate from Sunday. Leading the box office, it's the highest grossing R-rated debut of the pandemic era. That's a positive thing. Again, I, I don't think we should go into comparing what its predecessor made and didn't. One was a PG-13 movie. The other one, the one now, is rated R. There's a day and date strategy. And again, the little detail of the pandemic that we're still recovering from. Uh, but beyond that, you know, uh, we had in second place, Jungle Cruise, 15.6 million, uh, 55% drop from the prior weekend, reaching 65.3. Then in third place, we've got Old from Universal. That's theatrically exclusive. That only dropped 39%, earning 4.1 million from a little bit over 3,000 screens in its third weekend on the market. That's reached a total of 38.5 million. Fourth place, Black Widow, uh, making 4 million in its fifth weekend from uh, 3,100 locations. Rebecca, this is now the highest grossing film released during the pandemic, eclipsing F9's record. It's grossed a total of 174.3 million in North America, really, uh, since its release. A good, nice little benchmark. It's good to see titles hitting these mileposts as as the months uh, go on. And an interesting result here on fifth and sixth place, we've got from Focus Features, Stillwater, with 2.8 million in its sophomore frame, reaching the 10 million mark uh, for, for a film that received a standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival, starring Matt Damon. Uh, interesting title. I got to see it over the weekend with my wife. I think it's a uh, a sort of movie that you can go have dinner afterwards and get and have a good conversation about um, for adult audiences that maybe aren't interested on the superhero fair from Black Widow or Suicide Squad. That's a great counter-programming option. We haven't seen too many of those. I'm happy to see them in the market. 
And then in sixth place, a title that I know you're looking forward to, Rebecca, from director David Lowry, The Green Knight, distributed by A24. That made $2.5 million in its sophomore frame to gross a $12.1 million cum. Rebecca, I saw The Green Knight at the movies, I can tell you, alongside Tenet, when I saw that back in October 2020, The Green Knight is one of the best at-the-movie theater experiences I've had since the start of the pandemic. You absolutely have to see this at the movies. Like any David Lowry movie, I think it's safe to say, it's going to be tough to watch it at home, even the one yeah, with Casey you'll get Affleck dis- wearing you'll get a ghost distracted. sheet. Yeah, you'll yeah. Get, it's that, it has that sort of tone where you need to be in the dark room. And Well, I say this about his previous films, as I have not yet seen The Green Knight, but it is something that I'm, I'm definitely going to go see in a theater. And, I mean, it's the only place I can see it right now is in a theater because... It, like Stillwater, uh, did get a theatrically exclusive release. Uh, Daniel, thankfully, we can say the same thing about the two major releases uh, coming out a few days from now as well. Yeah, a couple of new titles that are going to be exclusive to cinemas that aren't part of a big IP franchise. We've got Respect, uh, that biopic of Aretha Franklin. I know a lot of folks are excited to see that. There's a horror sequel coming in, so I guess that is a franchise, Don't Breathe 2. What's the background of this Don't Breathe series? You're a wrestler. I'm very excited for that one. Yeah, I was at the uh, the midnight premiere of the first Don't Breathe um, uh, at Fantastic Fest a few years ago, and it it was just a completely nerve-jangling experience. Um, Basically, kind of stars Stephen Lang as this uh, very scary gentleman who is blind but has a super sense of hearing and knows his guns. So when a couple people try to break into his house, it it doesn't go well for them. But I've I've heard some things about what's going on in this film beyond what you see in the trailer that uh, that makes it look really exciting for me. And the first one, and I imagine this one as well. You know, the characters are all trying to remain very quiet. So this scary guy with the super hearing doesn't hear them. Um, it was like a quiet place, just a superb theatrical experience, if, if only for oh, that That sounds reason. interesting. And, that sounds and like also another fun night movie, at the movies. So, yeah. Right. And then we also have Free Guy, which is more, um, more family-friendly, more family-oriented. Ryan Reynolds, who doesn't love Ryan Reynolds? B- basically playing an, an NPC who becomes self-aware. Um, What's an NPC is, mean? That sounds like a bank. Uh, an NPC is sort of like a, a video game extra, like you're the main oh. character walking around and you interact with them and they're programmed to say and do a very small number of things over and over. Um, do and the people I run over in Grand Theft Auto? Basically. And uh, okay. this time they come alive and, and presumably don't try to wreak bloody vengeance on you uh, because mm. this is a PG-13 movie. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it, it could be a really valuable film in terms of getting uh, younger audiences back who have spent a lot of time playing video games over the last year and a half. Um, Disney certainly seems to think that it, it has uh, that big screen potential because it did clarify in its most recent earnings call, its next one's actually coming out later today, um, that Free Guy will have a 45-day theatrical exclusivity window. So um, that's going to be an interesting uh, turn of events here. I'm going to be heading out to actually see another new release. It's going to be out on limited release this weekend. Emma from the Chilean director, Pablo Larraín. Really excited to catch that. It's what we're seeing right now is a couple of releases here and there over the summer 
from specialty distributors uh, that are really looking at these adult skewing audiences that, yeah, I mean, we enjoy superhero movies just like the next person, but uh, it's always good to have a balanced release schedule. I'm happy that we have that right now. And of course, if, if you're the type of person that enjoys these type of movies, please support them theatrically. It's the best way to ensure they keep on hitting theaters. You know, as we're chatting here, Rebecca, it's great to sort of sit back and see the big picture on maybe it's not total progress that theatrical is making right now uh, that really the global society is making right now in, in battling the pandemic. But we are in a very different place today than where we were last year. Uh, you know, it's, it's a very different context. Um, of course, it changes from country to country. But in the U.S., uh, from our perspective, it's so wonderful to be able to sit down talk about movies that we're looking forward to seeing at movie theaters in the coming weeks. And part of that is it's also great to be able to sit down and talk about seeing colleagues and uh, contacts from the film industry at CinemaCon a couple of weeks from now. Rebecca, I'm really excited. We're going to be there ourselves alongside our chief analyst, Sean Robbins. I can't wait to get there. What are you looking forward to the most uh, in Las Vegas in two weeks? You know, it, it's not even one particular event or studio presentation or, or panel. Um, it's just that trade show floor, just going around and, and meeting people. And especially, I think, this year, hearing their stories and hearing the innovation that has come out of it, um, you know, and just trying the food samples of all the new food products, I think. Is, <laughs> <laughs> that's always my favorite part. Um, though, though I will say as, as a little plug, on the morning of uh, Tuesday, the 24th, uh, I will be moderating a panel at 7.45 a.m. in the Palace Volume 3 called Rebuilding and Diversifying the Post-COVID Workforce. Uh, it's a topic that, you know, I know you and I, Daniel, we're super passionate about it. We've, we've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast. So, um, yeah, it should be a really great conversation. So that's that panel is actually one of the most compelling ones on the schedule. When did you say it was, uh, Rebecca? And who else is going to be joining you for this conversation on rebuilding and diversifying the post-COVID workforce at cinemas? Uh, that is uh, Tuesday from 7.45 to 8.45 a.m. at the Palace Ballroom 3. Uh, the panelists will be Francisco Schlutterbeck, the CEO of Maya Cinemas, which is a, a circuit that has really done great work in bringing theaters to underserved communities. Uh, Peter Liu, the VP of Operations at AMC Theaters. And Marissa Chasm, who is the uh, diversity and inclusion brand consultant at LinkedIn. I I'm particularly excited to speak to her because I think that, you know, one of the things we've all learned and thought about over this last year and a half is the ways in which the exhibition industry can learn from other industries. We have a guest that is a leader in the cinema dining space. Our guest today from our monthly Indie Focus series sponsored by Spotlight Cinema Networks is Look Dine-In Cinema's CEO, Brian Schultz. He's one of the pioneers of the dine-in concept here in North America. We're so happy to have him on. Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're excited to talk about uh, not only the start of your career in exhibition, uh, you've been in the industry for a number of years now, uh, but also the new projects uh, that you have uh, ahead. So I guess the, the best place to start is going way back. Brian, can you tell us about that first job you had in the exhibition industry, how you came to it, 
and uh, how that grew to sticking around from there. Well, so I always loved going to the movies. I didn't always love the experience. So believe it or not, my first job was really taking over a uh, one screen um, sub run movie theater that was built in 1948 here in Dallas, Texas. Actually, as I was traveling from Washington, D.C., where I was working previously on my way back to Southern California, where I grew up, I was supposed to do a theater there, but I never quite made it back to California. Southern California, you're from the land of the great movie theaters. Yes, and we're excited to be back there. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So how did that evolve into your work in the dine-in space, which you've been really instrumental in launching as a concept in North America? Yeah, so I've been doing this for 29 years, and it's a, you know, a passion project for me. It was love at first sight. I saw a movie theater restaurant in Bethesda, Maryland, and they had just some frozen chicken fingers. They had some warm beer out of a draft thing. And I don't know why, but I fell in love with it and I couldn't think of anything else. And I said, boy, what would it be like if you could combine a great hospitality experience with a great movie going experience? And I've spent the last 29 years trying to evolve that, not only for the movie going public, but you know, also for in theater dining, which I feel like is a really important way that people can enjoy film, especially those that maybe don't like just kind of concession stands. They want a whole hospitality entertainment experience. Brian, frozen chicken fingers and, and warm draft beer. That sounds a lot like Shea Stadium. Are you sure you weren't watching the Mets? <laughs> I think you might be confusing the Mets with the movie theater here. Well, you know, it's interesting how so many different industries have evolved that way. And theatrical isn't always the fastest to uh, innovate. And I really enjoy that space of pushing the industry and continuing to recreate. And when we talk a little bit about COVID, uh, what a silver lining to be able to recreate. What a horrible time for all of us and a time for the entire industry to reinvent itself. When you're starting something new in, in the cinema space, which, as you note, sometimes it takes time for innovations to, to really catch on. You know, you start observing a, a theater with frozen chicken fingers and warm beer. What are the hurdles that you encountered along the way in building up what your vision of what this concept could be? I don't look at the things as hurdles. I actually look at it as uh, additional tests. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that we can continue to evolve. So I, I like a philosophy of plan, do, check, adjust. So we make a plan. It sounds really good. It looks good on paper. We think it's going to work. And then we do it and then we check it and then we make adjustments. And that constant uh, reflection and improvement uh, continuously actually makes a huge difference in how a concept can really move from one point to another. And I think in, in that system th that you mentioned, there's always going to be lessons that you learn the hard way, let's say by experience, right? Especially when you're bringing the hospitality sector and the cinema sector and bundling them up in one unique concept uh, at the time with, with introducing dine-in to a number of markets here in the US. What were some of those early management lessons that you learned in those early days and that are still part of your philosophy today? Um, a lot of the lessons come from the movie theater business is really uh, feast or famine, has huge peaks and huge lulls. And from a staffing perspective, 
it's tough from a food and beverage preparation and ordering perspective is tough. So bringing that all together to make sure that we can actually pick films, uh, schedule them properly, and then uh, schedule the right um, amount of staff and purchase the right amount of food and prepare um, is always the challenge. So if you think about serving maybe 800 of your best friends in a one hour period, um, fresh, hot, made to order uh, meals, you can see where that challenge is. And the solution that I came up with was instead of always trying to optimize or cut labor or be the most efficient financially, I focused on the team member, making sure that they always earned a living wage and had a great place to work. And that created a hospitality environment that made the difference, that made guests want to come. And it really differentiated us from being solely dependent on the film, although the film is obviously such a critical point of what we do and really represents why people come to a dine-in theater. Um, there's a hospitality aspect and we've always had a lot of our guests just show up to the brand and, uh, you know, look cinemas, we're coming to look cinemas, now what's showing? So that's the way we kind of transition that, but it, it, it is a tough thing to execute. 800 meals, uh, high quality, fresh made to order, delivered to your seat without distracting from the main thing, which is the movie, has always been really difficult. You know, I, I really love to hear you say that about paying the the, your, the team workers fairly, treating them fairly, uh, really as a way to build up and help the chain as a whole. You know, that's something that carries through uh, your entire career is there's really an emphasis on, on corporate social responsibility. It's, it's a big part of really all, all of your endeavors. Uh, what are some of the campaigns that, that you're proudest to have uh, been involved in? And can you explain where that uh, attention to corporate social responsibility, you know, comes from for you? Yeah. Um, what's a little bit strange is I've had five certified uh, near-death experiences. So I'm a slow learner. It's taken a lot of uh, different things. But with every near-death experience, there's a internal transformation or learning that happens and what's so fascinating, and then I'll get back to the question about what's going on today, is as we look forward, I think the entire world's had a near-death experience and a chance to really reflect and look at life a little bit differently. Um, unfortunately, uh, through my daredevil background and racing motorcycles and uh, various things, <laughs> I, I had a few extra that I prefer not to replicate. But it always made me think, combined with growing up you know, not the wealthiest, not the, the poorest, but, um, you know, on the lower end of the socioeconomic cycle to say, let's take care of the team because the team's the actual one that's serving the guest. And then I was just blessed with some great mentors. Right when I came to Dallas, a gentleman named Norman Brinker, who uh, was the founder of Brinker International, Chili's, Maggiano's, um, Steak and Ale, um, really taught me how to build a great organization that was team focused. And we used to meet weekly at the theater and we would really create this infrastructure, whether it's training, financial awareness, or just general kindness. You know, we learned that and that all got embedded and became an important part, maybe even the important part. And it affected so many different things that we did at the uh, cinema, even our what we call sensory friendly now, but we called it special needs uh, screenings in the past. That all came out of 
one of my managers not being able to take his family to a movie. And for me, movies are a platform for learning, uh, for opening perspective, and really being able to venture into different types of lives that can be educational. And I know that I've learned so much from movies, so that's part of that motivation. So even though a lot of the programs that we do sound good and they're great initiatives, it's really movie by movie, guest by guest, that we try to create this opening of a perspective and an escape that uh, you know allows people to really continue on their journey. And Daniel, that really reminds me of something that was said in your interview with the the Karmitz brothers of MK2 uh, that was uh, on our podcast episode a few weeks back, really talking about how the cinema experience from its very genesis, it's populist. It's for the people. Everyone should be able to enjoy this com- compared to other forms of entertainment. You know, it is the most affordable to take your family and and. Uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's such a true statement to me. And, it, and I'm glad to see cinema chains kind of embracing that concept. Yeah, I love I love that where the movies really are for the population and for uh, different generations concurrently. Now, I also love food and I love beverages and partaking in that. And I think that that rounds out the experience. But I'm taking this opportunity to recreate in look cinemas the ability to have a distraction-free dining experience. So by making some transitions where before we had beautiful interior uh, parts of the theaters, now we've really stripped that down to be more of a black box concept so that you can really disappear and focus into the film, not taking orders after the um, uh, main feature begins. Really having the systems and process that are ninja-like servers you know, in their black shirts and black pants, can get the food on the table before the movie really begins. All those things so that we can really honor the movie going experience and allow people to really not be distracted in any way. And that was really the chief drawback of uh, Dine-In that we heard is that uh, there were, you know, a pretty distinct population that thought it was distracting. So at the start of COVID, that was one of the main things that I wanted to overcome in look cinemas. For sure, when when I go to a dine-in, I'm always people are walking in front of the screen, and I'm like doing the bob and weave. <laughs> it's tough, to right? Get around I, them. I think one of the big drawbacks yeah. for me when I go to a dine-in, I think when it's not executed properly, is when I'm looking around me and people are getting their meals 40, 45 minutes into the movie. I'm not fixated on the movie anymore. I'm thinking when my nachos are going to come, when my sandwich is going to come. I get completely uh, distracted from it. So it's refreshing to hear how this approach of dining cinemas, you are taking that plan, do, check, and adjust. You're bringing that into the cinema concepts that you're getting involved with today. And let's use that as a transition to talk a little bit more about look cinemas. Obviously, as you mentioned, the pandemic, I think, gave all of us an opportunity to step back and sort of recalibrate our future activities. That's definitely the case for you. Can, can you walk us through how you got the Look Cinemas and some of your plans around that concept? Yeah, so uh, in April of uh, 20, when uh, COVID was really going on, I took a step back, started to reflect, uh, knew that this was going to be a tough road. And I hired a um, consulting group called Jump, who consulted with us. And we really had one question which was if we were going to try to recreate the entire uh, movie-going community, what would we do? 
And we started pushing on all kinds of things. And we had really the entire company look into that. And that's really the core playbook uh, for the future of uh, Look Cinemas. Now, I always loved Look Cinemas. They had one location in Dallas. They built a, an absolutely gorgeous location there. And I always loved the, the feel of it, the brand, which is a little bit elevated uh, food and beverage concept. And when I talked to the uh, founder, Brian Mason, who's a, a good friend, you know, COVID really wiped them out. And there was a great relationship where we could get together. And I decided that this would be the perfect vehicle and the perfect brand to really extend and bring across the country. And that's exactly what we're doing. But the ethos and Halo and what he developed and that reputation for being uh, future forward innovation, high quality food um, with a real specialty and believe it or not, sushi, which uh, we got to benefit from, um, you know, all different kinds of things that uh, were really great. I love that idea of starting from zero, build a dine-in cinema from nothing. No preconceived notions. What would you do? Because there are things that can be changed. Well, there's a lot of things that could be changed and change management in larger organizations. Um, uh, In my previous role, we were up to 7,200 employees. And, you know, change is tough. A lot of things had been baked in for decades. Um, and being able to start from a fresh piece of paper and just build from there was really a, a treat, a little bit scary, um, but a lot of fun. It got me back really thinking, talking, learning, and trying on things from all different kinds of industries that we could piece together into what we think is something really special that's going to help lead our industry uh, out of COVID onto bigger and bigger, better things. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I think that's a question that every exhibitor around the world is asking themselves right now. What can we do as an industry to emerge from this pandemic in, in a positive place, right? It's, it's been a, a devastating crisis, uh, first and foremost, on the health level, on the social level uh, for the entire world. And obviously in a very distant second place, the economic impact has also been devastating for this industry. Brian, as you emerge from the pandemic with a new project like Look Cinemas, what is in your mind uh, to make sure that cinemas can move forward past this crisis? I, I think so many of us are still tethered in the past where there's big Hollywood, uh, you know, blockbusters. You know, we show them five times a day. It has to be in the largest auditorium for a certain amount of time. There's all these rules. I think the move is going to be from film booking to content programming. Our theaters hopefully will become kind of community centers And with the shrinking of windows, I think that there's going to have to be mutual flexibility uh, to really bring to the communities what they want and be more of a community gathering place that can use technology to to bring us forward. Whether that's relationships with video conferencing and training, concerts, education, um, and obviously, you know, our main thing is, uh, you know, film. I mean, from just a moviegoer's perspective, you just show up to this theater, you see a great movie, you have a great meal. You don't really think about everything that goes into that, whether it's the complex relationships between exhibitors or distributors or just 
how financially challenging it, it can be to hit your margins. Uh, to that end, I mean, one of the things that really helps uh, movie theaters kind of boost that bottom line a little bit is something like in cinema advertising. Um, could you fill us in a bit on on your connection with Spotlight Cinema Networks and how cinema advertising can help look cinemas as it uh, continues to expand? Yeah, so that, that was a great relationship. That's an example of a chance to really start from blank paper and focus on who, who really would the best partner be. And I don't think of Spotlight as cinema advertising. I think about it as part of the show and bringing our guests um, information about products, films, uh, all different kinds of things that are educational. So they've done a great job partnering and creating a pre-show that's both entertaining and informative, but not just really hawking national brands or you know general products that you can see on TV, but really trying to tailor the content to the, uh, the customer base, uh, even on a per film basis. So uh, I'm excited about that. That's a new relationship, um, but they're a new relationship with Spotlight, but relationships with the team that I've had for decades. So I'm looking forward to really enjoying that. Yeah, it is a, a business of relationships and it's it's great to know that we can get back to having those relationships now in person even, my goodness, with CinemaCon coming up after uh, after the year and a half we've had. I, I think that's going to be an epic uh, party. And I hope that uh, when we're at CinemaCon, there's not too much focus looking backwards and we can put all our effort into really looking forward and thrusting this incredible industry into its next evolution. Wonderful. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, once again, this has been Brian Schultz, the CEO of Look Dine-In Cinemas here on the Box Office Podcast. Thank you so much to both Brian Schultz and Spotlight Cinema Networks, as well as fellow sponsor Mandalay International, whose Oreo popcorn I know we are both very excited about trying. From behalf of myself and Daniel, thanks to all of you for listening, and hopefully we will see as much of you at CinemaCon as we can. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company alongside Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you again next Thursday. Mm-hmm.